0: soon as we can, all right? Uh, so let's look at this passage uh, as we're, we're following Jesus uh, from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, to being on trial before the Sanhedrin, to standing before uh, Pontius Pilate. And now we're looking at this uh, sad and, and frankly just disturbing episode with the soldiers. So I invite you to stand In honor of God's word, I'm going to begin in verse 16 and finish in verse 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word this morning and show us the dignity and the beauty and the majesty of the one who humbled himself. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. If, uh, if you've been around church circles for any period of time, you've probably heard the expression, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Those are theological categories that are really helpful to understand what the incarnation's about, what the resurrection's about, and, and so on um and and that's that's helpful to us if you're new then th- these are good hooks to, to hang your your uh understanding of who Jesus is on and this is obviously a, has a lot to do with the humiliation rather rather than the exaltation but but we're going to get to the exaltation uh and that's where we're headed but let's start with how jesus um was was mistreated abused mocked um by these soldiers uh, they're was a time uh, a few decades after Jesus, when in one year, in, in the year 69 AD, there were four different emperors, Roman emperors, all in that one year. You, I mean, you know, our nation's kinda wondering what's gonna happen if there's a transfer of power and all that, you know, you think we're anxious. Like four different emperors in, in one year. It started in January when uh, Galba, the emperor, died, and then Otho uh, sort of took power, uh, took matters in, took the the throne in his own hands, followed by Vitellius, followed by Vespasian, and all four emperors were on the throne in 69 AD. I want to focus on Vitellius just real quick and and show you something that I think is, is kind of helpful as we look at this passage this morning. He ruled for eight months. And of course he lost his throne to Vespasian who, who had, he was a general and he had his soldiers and they conquered Vitellius's soldiers. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. But Vitellius was from a, a, a political family. Like he grew up understanding these power structures and the ways that uh, the, the Roman government worked. His, his father was the governor of Syria And in that jurisdiction of Syria was Judea. And the governor of Judea, as we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, is Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate was arguably the most famous ancient ruler, even though he was just a little tiny governor, because we we talk about him all the time. We, We say his name every time we say the Apostles' Creed, how Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate lost his governorship because he mishandled you know, an uprising and was, 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 was not politically savvy. And it was Vitellius's father who deposed him, who pulled him out of the governorship of Judea. So this is, this is Vitellius, the son of the guy who you know pulled Pontius Pilate out of power. Vitellius is in power in Rome. He's the emperor for eight months, eight short months, and his army is being um, approached by Vespasian's army. And Vespasian wants the throne. Vitellius sends his army out to meet Vespasian's army. Vespasian's army wins. That means that Vitellius knows his his time is up. And he has a plan to hide in the palace and then escape under the cover of night. But Vespasian's soldiers capture him before he can escape. And I want to read to you some of what happened to him. After they captured Vitellius, uh, one of the Roman historians named Cassius documented this. And he said that after Vitellius was arrested, they tore off his tunic. And they tied his hands. And they marched him through the streets to the jeering and the taunts of the crowd. And to quote Cassius directly, some buffeted him, you know, hit him. And some pulled at his beard. All mocked him. All insulted him. And then he was led off to his death by the Roman executioners. Does any of that sound familiar? That kind of has a little bit of a rhyme, an echo to what we just read in Mark 15, right? Like the whole mockery of Jesus, they're mocking Vitellius and abusing him, torturing him, and then they're going to kill him. And frankly, this isn't new. What happened to Jesus wasn't unique. What happened to Vitellius wasn't unique. Like It happened all the time. The history is replete with the former ruler being dethroned and um, captured or, you know, defeated, uh, he is bound, uh, that ruler is tormented, often tortured, and then executed. And then the new power um, monger takes control. So that's that's just kind of how history goes a lot of times. Jesus is, is, is being mocked as the king of the Jews. And so, you know, here are these... Uh, Roman soldiers, Mark tells us it's a battalion, and we don't really know. Was uh, the battalion a reference to a, uh, a cohort, which would be roughly a tenth of a legion, a, a legion being between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So a cohort would have been 300 to 600 soldiers. Could, could might be a cohort, or a maniple. Uh, a maniple is a, a quarter. Uh, or a third of a cohort, so maybe it was uh, 150 to 200. The precision isn't what matters here. What I want us to understand, though, is that this is a couple hundred at least, like conservative estimates. This battalion is a couple hundred Roman mercenary soldiers who are in Jerusalem who are fed up with Jewish insurrectionists, with these guys who are trying to stir up the, the populace to throw off Rome, and they're making trouble for the soldiers who have to go out into the streets and, and, and subdue these, um, uh, these guys with swords and daggers. And, you know, the word cloak and dagger, that all came from this time, this time period, by the way. Roman soldiers would be injured, stabbed. Some of them would die because of insurrectionists. so here's Jesus, an insurrectionist, a robber. And these hundred, couple hundred soldiers have the opportunity now to vent a little bit, work out some of their frustration, exercise a little vindictiveness, you know, get even for what their buddy had suffered under the, you know, from the, sword or dagger of some other Jewish insurrectionist, and now Jesus is going to pay the price, right? What do they do to him? Uh, They take the cloak, right, the red or scarlet cloak from one of the uh, soldier generals, Uh, that's what they wore as a demonstration of their rank, and they would drape that over Jesus, they take a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they uh, mark I'm sorry, Matthew gives us the added um, detail that they put a reed in his hand, presumably that's the staff of the centurion, Uh, and and look at verse 18 again. They began to salute him, right? Hail, King of the Jews, and uh, they they were striking his head with the staff, with that reed, and they're spitting on him, and they're kneeling down in homage to him, like deliberately mocking him using the same formula, hail, king of the Jews, the same honorific formula that these soldiers would give to Caesar, hail Caesar, ave Caesar, ave king of the Jews, right? And so this this deliberate, um, what one author says, a kind of grotesque vaudeville going on here as they're pretending to worship emperor Jesus and make a complete mockery out of this and and abusing him and and doing violence to him. So, you know, everyone mocked him, just like Vitalius, all mocked him, all insulted him. It starts with the soldiers. And if you've got your Bibles out, if you're still up in the Mark 15 or your devices, look, look further with me, jump ahead to verse 29. Well, see, it wasn't just the soldiers who were mocking Jesus all those who passed by derided him. Like, so when Jesus is being paraded through the streets, just like Vitellius, all are deriding him. And when, when he nailed him to the cross, thousands of people are in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're all being, they, they all see what's going on just outside the city gates. And as they go by, they pass by, all deride him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down uh, from the cross. And, And then verse 31 goes on to say, And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And So you get the soldiers mocking him, the people mocking him, the scribes and the chief priests mocking him, and even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. All mocked him. All insulted him. In fulfillment of prophecies like Psalm 69, verse 7 says, For it is for your sake, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. This is the, the Christ figure, the suffering servant, uh, the, the servant of God who would come and bear the disgrace of his people. And Michael Card uh, writes in his book, A Violent Grace, we could safely say, like, you know, it's pretty realistic to say that the last words Jesus heard in the moments before his death were insults from the people and silence from his heavenly father. This is the humiliation of Christ, bearing our disgrace and enduring the mockery and the violence and the silence. He humbled himself. So it's, it's one thing to go, yeah, boy, that is that's terrible what he went through. That's so humiliating what he went through. It's another thing to go, but he chose that. He deliberately walked into that. Like, when's the last time you felt humiliated, right? Like, when's the last time you were embarrassed by, by somebody else? I mean... Uh, <laughs> And I was trying to think of some examples. Like it, it, it literally almost happened this morning. I was getting ready for the 8.30 service, and I was over in the office, and I'm looking over my notes, and it's like, oh, okay, about 8.20, uh, and I'm folding up my notebook, grabbing my Bible, and I stand up, and I'm <laughs> going, looking, reaching down to the coffee table to grab my notebook and Bible, and I looked down, and I realized that my zipper... <laughs> I'm like, "Well, thank you Jesus." And I thought, "Well, no, darn it, that would have been a great illustration, but uh, it, was, it was the illustration that almost was. So I'm, I'm kind of glad I'm kind of not. Uh, but anyway, like, you remember when your flies down, how embarrassing that is? you go, "Oh gosh. Um, and it happened yesterday. Yesterday, we were, we were here for the memorial service. George Sparks. And, and some of you got to meet George. He was uh, a member with us for about a year. Uh, he lost his battle to cancer, but he won uh, the victory over sin and death through Jesus. And he's with the Lord right now. Um, these flowers are in honor of him uh, to beautify our service today. Uh, George was a truly humble individual. And the more I got to know him, the more I learned about him, the more I understood what a pretty amazing person uh, he was. And I, and I learned more yesterday because this room, uh, w- the, those who were in attendance were all of these bigwigs from JMU, where George was, uh, he had just retired from being on the faculty there. And everybody who's participating in the service has a doctor in front of their name, like, and the provost was here. And, and just... Everybody who's anybody in the arts and and, um, department was here to honor George, including the marching royal dukes were outside, by the way. That was really cool as a a send-off and a tribute to George. And so here we are, all all these people who are very impressive and so on, and I'm doing my part and leaning through the service. And we get to the Apostles' Creed, and I'm just going along the Apostles' Creed, and I mess up. The Apostles' Creed. How many times have I said the Apostles' Creed? This is my job, and and I flub the Apostles' Creed in front of all these people. With my microphone on, like, I can't hide it. Yeah, that's me. I did it. You know, so when, when were you last humiliated? Maybe it was recent. Maybe it was a while ago. Or maybe, like, a lot of this stuff, right, happens when we're kids. When, when th- the things that we remember for a lifetime, like, when I was 16, maybe I just turned 17, brand-new driver in 11th grade. And I'm, and I'm driving my 1981 Ford Mustang and I'm, uh, I'm feeling good, got my driver's license and I'm, I'm driving out, right? And I'm pulling out of the school, just, just leaving the parking lot, pulling out of the school and it was next to a neighborhood, a residential area and, and uh, cars parked on the street. And I turned too sharply turn to the right and I, I hit a parked car. How impressive is that, right? Um, All the other kids are loving that. Like, oh my gosh, Essen hit a parked car. How, how what an idiot, right? I mean, and that's how it goes. And I think everybody in this room and everybody at home, you know that moment where everybody thinks you're an idiot. Everybody thinks you're a loser, and it's humiliating. None of us would choose that. None of us would walk into those kinds of experiences. Hey, I know what I'll do. I'll go, you know, play the fool. That's exactly what Jesus did. He chose this. And he knew it was happening. And he talked about it again and again. And we get an example back in Mark chapter 10, telling the disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. He knew exactly what was facing him. This was the plan for long ages. Jesus was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy about the suffering sermon. We we already looked at Psalm 69. Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Don McLeod in the book, his book, The Person of Christ, says that the humiliation of Christ was not a point, it's like a, a singularity it wasn't an, a, 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 an off episode, but a line beginning at Bethlehem and descending to Calvary. This was his whole life, his whole earthly life was, was an experience of, of humbling himself and of humiliation, like this one long line of descent from Bethlehem to Calvary we, You know this, Uh, many of you are just going to be familiar from Philippians 2, how how we're to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross, from Bethlehem to Calvary, this, this arc of humiliation, right? So, you know, you see the, the, the soldiers mocking him and the people mocking him, the scribes, and, the, and even the crucified criminals all mocking him. And we see his humiliation, we go, oh, that's terrible. Well, what about now? How do people make a mockery of Jesus even today? How do, they, how do they disregard his authority, his kingship, right? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords people are making fun of. How does that happen today? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not just the people out there. I mean, there's this thing in us, right, that says, oh, I would never do that. I would never mock Jesus. But what does it mean for us to to be in here? And as we just sang, "All hail the power of Jesus' name! Hail Him who saves you by His grace! Hail King Jesus!" And then you know we're, we get the benediction to go and and serve the Lord as those who love our serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we head out those doors, and sometimes we don't even make it to the car before. We're, we're, we're mocking the sermon <laughs> no. or before we're we we're, we're making fun of of you know somebody that we saw or we're we're snipping at one another if you're if your spouse you know are you're, you're you're arguing in the car before you get home you're losing your temper and saying something to your kids that you shouldn't be saying like King Jesus hail King Jesus but we reject his authority We turn our backs on his law, and we say, no, it's my will be done. And and we make a mockery of his lordship. And I've alluded to this, but but I think it's more evident as we think about, all right, so we're not going to overtly make fun of Jesus. We know better, right? We're in church, uh, even though maybe the rest of the culture doesn't. But what about his image bearers? What about the image bearers of Jesus? All of us, all people, all over the world, there's no exception. Every human being is an image bearer of Jesus. And how are we mocking image bearers of Jesus? How are we doing violence to the image bearers of Jesus? We're all guilty of it. When we mock those who we think are inferior to us, right? Like we make fun of people because somehow that elevates us and we think, you know, that they're below us and we sort of reassure the pecking order, you know, reestablish that by, you know, an offhanded remark or a joke or whatever. Or what if it's not somebody who we think is below us but that boss or that person in authority over us who we make fun of and we mock because somehow... That makes us feel like we're not so, you know, it gives us a sense of power under somebody whose authority, you know, we're working or existing. And this happens again and again and again. We see it especially right now, especially right now when people are mocking one another, insulting one another based on their political views, based on which candidate you endorse. People are mocking one another, and they're they're, they're perpetuating. It. Oh well, maybe I'm not mocking, but hey, did you see this meme? Did you see this article? And we share it, and we send it on, and we laugh, and we go, "Oh yeah." Maybe it's not politics. Maybe it's COVID. Mocking, you know, mocking those who think yeah, we all should be you know taking all these precautions, and everybody should be wearing masks, but they don't want to, but. My, oh, come on, they're, they're so reactive and they're so, you know, uh, upset. And, or we mock those who, you know, aren't, you know, taking precautions and we think, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they, you know, these people and how they view this. And back and forth it goes. And on both sides of whatever the issue are the image bearers of Jesus who deserve respect, you deserve to be treated with dignity. You deserve to be treated the way that we would treat Jesus. So maybe it's the way we mistreat the dignity of others that we mistreat the dignity of Jesus, or certainly the way that we mistreat the bodies of others, the way that Jesus' body was mistreated. Like so it goes without saying, right, that, that of course this would include issues of physical or sexual abuse and violence, right? There's no room for that. And we go, okay, yeah, I would never do that. Well, but what about protecting the dignity of the bodies of the unborn? And what about protecting the dignity of the bodies of the disabled? and the dignity of the bodies of the elderly, like no exception. Everyone is an image bearer of Jesus. And in this uh, parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus would, would have us be mindful of, of who's around us. And, and, and the, you know, the, the goats are saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Jesus, the king, would say, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So I like, guess not even enough that we just go, well, I don't hurt anybody and I don't, I don't mock anyone and I just sort of sit on my hands so I don't do anything wrong. Well, no, I like, guess not enough not to just refrain from abusing somebody's dignity or somebody's body, but, but it's not elevating. And not honoring them and and taking action toward that end is, is what Jesus is saying is, is the problem. So, all right, yeah, this is a low point, right? This is the low point of Jesus' humiliation and, and, and it's kind of a low point for us as we're feeling the weight of this on our own lives and our own souls, and so so let's follow that 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 upside down arc, that that parabola back up as 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 Paul follows it in Philippians two, right? He talked about the humiliation of Jesus who you know, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the exaltation of Jesus, the one who chose humiliation. So I want you to listen to another description of the exaltation of Jesus, of Jesus in his glory, where John saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns, right? Do you ever think about that? Why, Why does he have many crowns? Like People just wear one crown. Well, of course, you wear one crown if you're the monarch of one nation. What if you're the king of two nations? How many crowns do you wear? What if you're the king of five nations? How many crowns do you wear? What if you're the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King of all nations? You need a lot of crowns. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's kind of reddish, scarlet even. And the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. Do you remember Jesus? saying that he could, if he wanted to, he could call on 12 legions of angels to save him, defend him, come to his rescue. But because he's choosing humiliation, he stands there before his accusers. 12 legions, right? This is, this is a cohort that Jesus was surrounded by. Jesus could call on 12 legions, 12 6,000s of the heavenly army would follow him, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What if the soldiers, this cohort, were given this vision of Jesus? What would their reaction be after abusing him, mocking him, taking that staff and striking him on the head, spitting in his face, bearing down the crown of thorns, draping that robe over him, and falling down, prostrate before him, pretending to worship him, and then they get this vision of Jesus. They'd be terrified. Absolutely terrified. How would they respond? What if... What if one... A few, a dozen, what if half, or what if the whole cohort, every single one of them that had done such abuse and violence to Jesus' dignity and to his body, what if every single one of them repented? What if every single one of them realized this is wrong? We shouldn't have done. Please forgive us. How would Jesus respond? Michael Card again, if spit was on his face and scorn was in his ears, what do you think was in Jesus' heart? In other words, why did he do this? Why did he go through with this? Why did he humble himself? Why did he suffer that kind of humiliation? Why was he still had more suffering to go on the cross? Why was he on that that downward parabolic trajectory? Why? Do you know how Paul would have answered? Because he loved me. And he gave himself for me. Because he loves us. And he gave himself for us. And he's demonstrating the the power and the the height and the width and the length and the depth of his love for us. This is is what makes him so exalted because his love would take him to those depths that he would love even those who are mocking him, scorning him, and abusing him. And he would love even us. Mock and scorn and abuse his image bearers. This is Repentance Sunday. We we talked about that earlier in in the service. Like This this day where we realize, wait a minute, repentance is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Repentance teaches us to turn from ourselves and our sin and our self-interest and our self-righteousness and turn to the one who can heal us and save us and restore us, the one who can exalt us. Jesus told the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector the Pharisee, the religious professional person who's standing in front of you know, the church praying about himself. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. All these terrible, evil, wicked people out there, especially like this tax collector behind me. What a jerk. Thank you that I'm not like them. And then the tax collector in the back, he can't even go up to the front, and he's just looking down. He's beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that the, the tax collector, the sinner, who humbled himself, who asked for mercy, he went home justified. Not the religious guy. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what Jesus does for us through the cross as he takes our sin on himself, as he takes our shame on himself, as he takes our guilt on himself. Then then we get him. He puts himself on us and he exalts us with him and we are united to him in his exaltation, in his well, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his reign, and, and we're exalted in all that. We're exalted to the point where he would even include us in his family. We, we, we experience the exaltation of adoption. We experience the exaltation of reigning with him. We experience the, the, the greatest exaltation of all, which is to be loved by him forever. Forever. And that's, that's the beauty and the glory. That's why we exalt him, because of his love. So how do we properly honor the, the king of kings? How do we move more deeply into exalting the one who is exalted? How do we participate that? How do we get on board with that? Well... One of the things that we can do is what we're doing right now and all of you who are you know, at home or here in person, you are here because you heard a call to worship, a call to come and to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's not because he needs us to fawn over him and tell him how wonderful he is, like this vain, insecure prince, right? It's not why he calls us to worship him. He calls us to worship Him, because we need this. We need to come into this place and be reminded that life isn't about me. Life, isn't, life doesn't revolve around me. I'm not the center of the universe, and our, we have our spiritual sanity restored. Life revolves around him. and he restores us and forgives us and, and sets us back on our feet so that, yeah, when we go out those doors, we, we go out those doors forgiven and restored and with a vision to go and actually serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So to love and serve our families and to love or serve our neighbors and not belittle them and not mock them, and not do violence to them. And to repent again when we do. And so we exalt him by by doing this and that we keep doing this and and we don't forsake this, even though I know it's hard and it's it's not as fun anymore. (laughs) It's not as fun anymore, but we need this, and we need to, to, to remember that there's not only the, the vertical way to exalt Jesus, the horizontal way too. There's a, um, last year, last summer, before COVID, uh, there was this crazy story that came out of Paris, uh, this little village outside of Paris, a 90-year-old woman was selling her house and she called in the auction company to auction off all her stuff and she was moving to some kind of assisted living or whatever. And so the auctioneer comes in and he's doing, you know, the appraisal and starting to take the list, everything they're going to sell and what they're going to just get rid of. And he sees a a painting above the hot plate, like the, the little kitchenette thing. Just this little painting that's not any bigger than a piece of paper, 8 inches by 11 inches, but there's something about this painting that catches the, the appraiser's eye, and the appraiser looks at this 90-year-old woman and says, you need, to, you need to take that to an expert. There's something really remarkable about this painting. Let me show it to you. It was discovered to be a lost Chimibue. Uh, Chimibue was the father of the Italian Renaissance, one of the early uh, Pre-Renaissance painters, who the, the real you know the masters were, were getting inspiration from people like Chimibue who painted in the 13th century. This is from about 1280, and it was part of a, a, an altarpiece. And it was lost. There's two others uh, that, that uh, survived. One um, there's one in the the National Gallery in in London, and there's one in the Frick Collection in New York. And so they found this painting, and 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 it's. The image, I know it's kind of hard to, to recognize, but go online and you can see it um, in our sermon notes. It's Christ being mocked. It's this scene. And the appraiser, you know, the experts are looking at it and they're going, this is a Chimibue. And we've never had one come up for public sale. It's never been at auction before. Nothing by Chimibue has ever been at auction. And they, they guessed, they were just appraising that it's going to sell for between 4 and $6 million at auction. And the appraisers were wrong. It sold for $26 million. It's the most expensive uh, pre-Renaissance work that's ever been sold at auction. And it was mounted on the wall above a 90-year-old woman's hot plate, just decorating just religious decorations. She thought, you know, it's some kind of icon piece. $26 million. How do we exalt Jesus? What's he worth to you? What's his humiliation worth to you? What's it worth to you that that he would endure that for you? Do we exalt him in light of that? Do we... Do we exalt him by praising him with our mouths? Do we exalt him by treasuring him in our hearts? Do we exalt him by by seeking him with our eyes? Do we exalt him by serving him with our hands? Do we exalt him by following him with our feet? Do we exalt him by listening to his voice with our ears and, and, and doing what he says? That's how we exalt him. And we exalt him by by looking around us and going, where is the image bearers? And how do I exalt them? And how do I lift up my neighbor? How do I encourage and edify those around me? How do I make their lives better instead of tearing them down? The king turned to the sheep. And the sheep said, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, the king of kings, will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray. Lord, you're worth more than a Chimabue. You're worth more than all the paintings in the Frick collection. You're worth more than all the treasures in all the museums, in all the vaults, above all the hot plates. In this world we we know this but but we, we need to embrace it and we, we need to experience it more so please help us to see more of your glory and more of your beauty and the height and width and length and depth of your love Lord would you uh, change our hearts and help us to glorify you help us to exalt you as we should help us to 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 exalt you as we will one day um, and Lord we pray that you would lead us to to think of creative ways and, and go out of our way to exalt others because they bear your image. And as we exalt them, they will see you exalting them because we bear your image. Lord, forgive us for where we fail. We repent. And we ask for you to pardon our sins and lift us up just as you were lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray.